0: Beginning in 1969 with NEPA and then in 1970 with the Clean Air Act and 1972 with the Clean Water Act, environmental law essentially became federalized. And um, we now have about 15 or 18 environmental, federal environmental laws, which uh, are the, sort of the baseline for the country and how we deal with uh, environmental p- problems.
1: Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network.
2: Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams, coming to you from Southern California. I write a blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued in the Sled. Well, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to continue our series on environmental law. We're going to cover the cradle-to-grave treatment of chemicals throughout the year and our laws on environmental biology. But in this episode, we're going to be discussing the Pollution Prevention Act, the Clean Water Act, and the Clean Air Act and their intended impact on our environment. And we'll look ahead to the future for both legislation and cases coming up. To speak more on this topic, our guest today is Leroy Paddock. He's the former Associate Dean for Environmental Law Studies at George Washington University Law School. Dean Paddock is also a member of the ABA section on Environmental Energy and Resources Council, And prior to working at GW Law, he was a director of environmental legal studies at Pace University Law School from 2002 to 2007. And he's also served as senior consultant for the National Academy of Public Administration on several projects since 1999. Welcome to the show, Lee. Thank you very much. Well, how did you first become interested in the environmental area of law?
0: Well, I um, probably became interested while I was um, living in Connecticut in the Coast Guard in the early 1970s, a more community-based issues. Uh, so I went to law school at the University of Iowa, uh, specifically with the idea of going into environmental law and uh, had the opportunity to work with the uh, dean of the law school there, who was an environmental lawyer as his research assistant. And then um, went to the Minnesota Attorney General's office in 1978 uh, with the idea of uh, doing environmental law, and I spent uh, 20 years uh, representing the State Pollution Control Agency and also advising the Attorney General, who at the time was Hubert Humphrey III, on uh, environmental policy issues. So it's been
2: my entire career. Since you have such a long involvement in environmental area area of law. How did environmental law get ge- first get generated? How did it start?
0: Well, um, it's interesting uh, that you asked that because I teach a course on the National Environmental Policy Act, which is the first of the major national environmental laws. Of course, before 1969, when NEPA was passed, a lot of states were doing um, environmental issues and but the federal government was more involved in kind of urging the states on. And beginning in 1969 with NEPA and then in 1970 with the Clean Air Act and 1972 with the Clean Water Act, environmental law essentially became federalized. And um, we now have about 15 or 18 environmental, federal environmental laws, which uh, are the sort of the baseline for the country and how we deal with uh, environmental
2: problems. It's an interesting background that you offer. I was in the Coast Guard Academy in New London, Connecticut, and also went to the University of Iowa, but a few years later than you.
0: Just interestingly, I also spent four years at the Coast Guard Academy, but I was uh, enlisted there as a damage controlman and worked in the carpenter
2: shop. It's a great place to learn about environmental law because that's the direct application of our laws, some of our laws to the maritime issues that we face. Let's talk a little bit about the Pollution Prevention Act generally. Uh, that was, I think, first enacted in 1990. What is the, what's the design and what's the reasoning behind the uh, PPA?
0: Well, one of the things that Congress, I think, began to realize uh, after about 20 years of trying to implement environmental laws and dealing with pollution at the end of the pipe is that it's expensive and time-consuming and and difficult to deal with issues once they've reached the stage where you're emitting pollutants. So the Pollution Prevention Act was really designed to get in front of those issues and begin to identify ways of designing out uh, pollution from industrial uh, practices so it's not a regulatory law it's it's more of an assistance based law and a, a law that provides uh, guides to industry about uh, how to deal with uh, with preventing pollution so, In Minnesota, we had the Minnesota Technical Assistance Project, which was designed at the University of Minnesota. It was a state law, but University of Minnesota implemented, and they would send student engineers into facilities, and I think they still do today, to help them redesign their processes so they used fewer chemicals, produced uh, less pollution. It's probably the time when EPA developed its Design for Environment program, which was put together to try to help industry uh, think about how they design products so there is uh, less pollution uh, generated in, in, that, uh, in that process.
2: Generally, the idea is source reduction is to eliminate as much pollution as possible from the beginning of the process, is that right?
0: Yeah, that's correct. And, and uh, it's interesting that there's a, a real renaissance uh, in that idea today Uh, which I think has a deeper penetration into business. So uh, it's sometimes referred to as circular economy with a lot of uh, major companies now focusing on uh, how to build their products uh, differently so there's less pollution, how to make them so that they can be repurposed or reused or um, uh, taken apart and and being used for other purposes. So circular economy is one way of talking about it. In other uh, quarters, it's re- referred to as materials conservation. So we, we know with uh, especially some of the minerals that are used in, um, in cell phones and computers that uh, there are limited supplies. So you wanna to try to conserve those and then recapture those materials if possible at their end of life. And more recently, a number of states uh, have adopted what's a widespread practice in Europe of extended producer responsibility laws. States started that with electronic waste. And I think 26 states now have electronic take-back laws for televisions and computers and the more recent interesting development has been in Maine, Oregon and California, where those extended producer responsibility laws now apply to packaging and plastics. And they require manufacturers that use packaging and plastics to uh, develop a collection system, usually a third party process, to take back packaging and plastics so that they don't end up in in rivers and, and lakes or landfills.
2: Yeah, it's, it's an interesting development here in California to see that there have been some significant changes in the way that those things are handled.
0: New York is also considering a, a similar extended producer responsibility law that has been supported by the New York Bar Association just in recent weeks.
2: You know, one of the things you talked about was that the Clean Air Act was enacted earlier than the Clean Water Act. And it was intended, I believe, to reduce and control air pollution nationwide. It started out in, apparently, 1963. What type of influence does the Clean Air Act have uh, on our country and the way that our air is treated?
0: Well, it's a huge influence. Folks of my age will remember when Los Angeles was uh, often smog-bound uh, from automobile emissions. Um, we were uh, exposed to Lots of uh, sulfur dioxide and nitrogen oxide emissions from cars around the country, from coal-fired power plants. So the Clean Air Act, I think, is widely recognized as one of the most successful environmental laws from a public health protection standpoint, because it's really heavily focused on air emission standards that will uh, avoid serious public health exposure. More recently, one of the big accomplishments has been around reducing uh, diesel emissions. Uh, Diesel emissions, uh, one study in Los Angeles uh, called the Multiple Air Toxic Study, looked at the range of of air toxic that that communities were exposed to and found that uh, diesel emissions along highways and near the ports were an order of magnitude More damaging to public health than any other toxic, including benzene. And that study and other studies have really focused the Clean Air Act on reducing emissions from things like school buses, where children have been exposed uh, for years to uh, diesel emissions.
2: How is it that California has had such an impact on the Clean Air Act uh, just from its own standpoint of being a separate state apart from the? federal regulations?
0: Yeah, so California, because of the level of smog and other problems with especially automobile emissions, had a very strong air quality program um, before the federal government. It's continued to have a kind of a special role under the Clean Air Act. So California is the one state that's allowed to set automobile emission standards more stringent than the federal standards, and California has routinely done that over many, many years. It was precluded from doing that during the Trump administration because the EPA, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, has to give California a waiver to allow it to have more strict standards. But during the Biden administration, California is again taking that lead role because the Biden administration has granted the waiver for California to have more strict standards. And it's not just California. There are several other states, especially in the Northeast, that have adopted the California stricter standards. So California is the only state that can set stricter standards, but other states can adopt the California standard, essentially making the California standard a nationwide standard for automobiles. We used to talk about California cars and 49 state cars. We rarely talk about that anymore because there are enough states that adopt the California standard that car manufacturers really have to manufacture to the California standard.
2: Well, Lee, it's time for us to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Learn by doing with Practicing Law Institute's award-winning on-demand interactive programs.
1: If you're like me, you're probably a bit frustrated with the state of our political system today. Democracy Decoded, a podcast by Campaign Legal Center, examines our government and discusses innovative ideas that could lead to a stronger, more transparent, accountable and inclusive democracy. Listen at democracydecoded.org to their new season, which takes a deep dive into democracy at the state and local level by highlighting different ways to ensure that every voter's voice is heard.
2: And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm joined by Lee Paddock. He is the former Associate Dean for Environmental Law Studies at George Washington University Law School. We've been talking about the Clean Air Act and California's influence on it. You know, the 2022 amendments put $370 billion into the U.S. EPA over the next decade to work on improving uh, renewable energy and electrical vehicles. If I believe Remember correctly, California has essentially outlawed uh, gasoline-powered vehicles in the next decade or some short period of time, and we're going to be totally turning toward electric. What's your thought on that?
0: Well, it's, it's, it's certainly an, an interesting development. And um, if you look at the new cars for 2023, you see many, many more electric vehicles on the market this started in, uh, of course, in, uh, in the European Union, which now is often the leader on environmental issues. I think England has adopted a, a phase out of, for the internal combustion engine. Many of the automobile manufacturers now have embraced this idea. And of course, the, the electricity companies have embraced it because it's a, it's a, a, a big new market. It's going to be important for climate change that we electrify not only our uh, automobiles but eventually all of our buildings. Uh, in fact, I'm just reading today about the schedule that New York is thinking about in requiring new buildings to be entirely electric. And, and the dates they're talking about are 2024 or 2027, which is a pretty amazing uh, development in the last few years one can worry a little bit about the reliability of the electric grid when all of these really large new loads come online. And of course, it doesn't help to have an all-electric fleet if, if the electricity generated to supply those cars is still heavily dependent on natural gas. But in kind of a chicken and egg situation, we need to decarbonize the grid quickly so, and also quickly decarbonize automobiles and buildings in order to meet the climate goals that, um, that are set in Paris and that the Biden administration wants to meet.
2: Are we going to be able to achieve those standards?
0: It's a big challenge to, to meet those standards. Um, if you would have asked me 10 years ago whether we would have a Even now, a 20 to 25 percent renewable energy grid, I would have not thought that to be possible. And both technically and politically, but that is where we're at now. And we're and that pace is accelerating on the electric grid. So I do think these remain very challenging goals. And the biggest challenge among those probably is electricity transmission, because so much of our wind... And solar are generated in places where people don't live, and we need to have long-distance uh, transmission lines to have an efficient renewable system. So, citing electricity transmission lines historically has been very difficult and time-consuming. And, uh, you know, the, the National Environmental Policy Act, which requires environmental impact statements, takes time to complete, so... There are a lot of obstacles in the way, but we're remarkably farther along than I would have anticipated even a few years ago.
2: Right. So, Lee, let's switch subjects here to the Clean Water Act and talk a little bit about some of the litigation that has occurred and that's recently had a large influence on it.
0: Yeah, so there's one really big issue with the Clean Water Act and another interesting Supreme Court case that also affects the the Clean Water Act So. As most people may recall uh, the basic provision of the Clean Water Act is that no one can discharge a pollutant through a point source into a navigable water of the United States without a permit. Anytime there is a discharge through a ditch or pipe a permit either from EPA or the state is required. So I'll take this kind of the narrower issue from the Supreme Court first, and and that is the a case involving, I think it's County of Maui uh, in Hawaii, and Maui, the wastewater treatment operator, was discharging their affluent near the Pacific Ocean, but into the groundwater before it actually reached the Pacific Ocean. Well, Environmental groups sued and said, what Maui is doing is really discharging a pollutant through a point source into a navigable water, the Pacific Ocean. Maui argued, no, we're discharging it into groundwater, and the Clean Water Act doesn't really address uh, discharges into groundwater, it addresses navigable waters. The evidence in that case indicated that the pollutants from the wastewater discharge did reach the Pacific Ocean within a few weeks of the time they were discharged. Maybe it's a couple of months. But the Supreme Court said that practice was, in fact, a discharge of a pollutant into a navigable water of the United States through a point source, uh, essentially opening the door to uh, allowing requiring permits for discharges near but not actually into a a navigable, in fact, water. This was a a result that I had always hoped would be the case because in Minnesota, where I worked for many years, they have a lot of karst formations, which are limestone that erodes very easily, and you can discharge into those karst formations, and sometimes in hours, if not days, pollutants can reach waterways. So if the Supreme Court hadn't done that, I think a lot of pollutants would be reaching navigable waters without having a permit. So that was an important decision. The other one that is a day-to-day controversy still today and has been for the last five or six years is what constitutes a navigable water of the United States, especially as it applies to wetlands tributaries uh, and what are called ephemeral waters that are that is waterways that don't run all year round the supreme court has always been split on this issue with a four four and one ruling which uh, said that adjacent waters are subject to the to permitting especially by the corps of engineers for wetlands the um, Uh, Obama administration tried to adopt new rules that would clarify when uh, wetlands were considered part of navigable waters. The Trump administration reversed those rules. The Supreme Court uh, stayed those rules. Then uh, the Biden administration has come back with a new rule, which they are proposing this year. And there is a case in the Supreme Court right now which would essentially invalidate the old Obama rules. So it's a very confusing area, but the, the, the kind of the core question is what wetlands should be subject to the um, Clean Water Act, which types of tributaries should be subject to that, and what kind of ephemeral waters should be subject to the Clean Water Act. All of these are based on commerce clause because environmental laws are are all based on the the Commerce Clause of the US Constitution. So one of the kind of key questions is what is the extent of the Commerce Clause? And might the Supreme Court actually um, narrow the definition of how far the Commerce Clause can be used to support environmental laws?
2: Lee, we're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back.
1: Filing court documents, serving legal papers, Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at slash simple.
2: Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you. I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network. Available wherever podcasts are found. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm joined by Lee Paddock. Lee, we were talking right before the break about the waters of the United States and the Clean Water Act. If I remember correctly, the uh, federal courts rejected the Trump rule that uh, limited the application of the uh, Clean Water Act to a number of waterways.
0: I believe that's right. There are Multiple rules at play and multiple cases in the in the Supreme Court. I think the important point for the listeners is that this is a this is a this is going to be a very important year for uh, understanding exactly what the extent of the jurisdiction uh, of the United States is over navigable waters, and that really is important for Corps of Engineers permitting for uh, dredge and fill, as well as for uh, the extent that EPA of EPA's Clean Water Act jurisdiction.
2: Right. Well, Lee, we've just about reached the end of our program. So I think it's time to wrap up and get your final thoughts as well as your contact information.
0: A few quick notes. Uh, I do think that the use of materials, which implicates a lot of greenhouse gas emissions, is going to be a Uh, an important new issue to watch, circular economy, extended producer responsibility. The Clean Air Act, obviously, the big issue to watch is climate change and what kind of steps EPA takes and what authority they have in the Clean Water Act. It's going to clearly be what constitutes a navigable water of the United States. So those are, I think, the important issues to, to keep track of. I can be reached at lpaddock, all lowercase, at law.gwu.edu. Thank you for this opportunity to talk a a little bit about environmental law and where,
2: uh, where it might be going. Well, thank you, Dean Paddock. It's been a pleasure having you on the show today. I think I'm squarely on the side of environmental compliance and expanding the definition of navigable waterways to certainly include groundwater contamination, as Lee pointed out. But California has long taken the lead in the Clean Air Act. And as a consequence, Jimmy Buffett's, you know, spent day in brown LA haze is no longer the case. We rarely have those type of days in Los Angeles anymore, largely, in fact, due to this Clean Air Act. And I know other states have cleaned up as well. So there are large benefits to these statutes, and it's troublesome to see the steps that President Trump took to try and gut them to eliminate those protections, but it seems like we're back on the right path. Well, that's it for Craig's rant on this topic today. Let me know what you think. If you like what you heard in the podcast today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts, your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at legaltalknetwork.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. Remember, when you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer.
1: Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes.